Chapter Eleven, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Eleven, Part Two. The critical hour had arrived, at which the physician, according to the rules of his art, had predicted that his royal patient might be awakened with safety, and the sponge had been applied for that purpose. And the leech had not made many observations, ere he assured the Baron of Gilsland that the fever had entirely left his sovereign, and that, such was the happy strength of his constitution, it would not even be necessary, as in most cases, to give a second dose of the powerful medicine. Richard himself seemed to be of the same opinion, for, sitting up and rubbing his eyes, he demanded of de Vaux what present sum of money was in the royal coffers. The baron could not exactly inform him of the amount. "'It matters not,' said Richard. "'Be it greater or smaller, bestowed all on this learned leech, who hath, I trust, given me back again to the service of the crusade.' "'If it be less than a thousand Byzants, let him have jewels to make it up.' "'I saw not the wisdom with which Allah has endowed me,' answered the Arabian physician. "'And be it known to you, great prince, that the divine medicine of which you have partaken would lose its effects in my unworthy hands did I exchange its virtues either for gold or diamonds.' "'The physician refuseth a gratuity,' said de Vaux to himself. This is more extraordinary than his being a hundred years old. Thomas de Vaux, said Richard, thou knowest no courage but what belongs to the sword, no bounty and virtue but what are used in chivalry. I tell thee that this more, in his independence, might set an example to them who account themselves the flower of knighthood. It is reward enough for me, said the more, folding his arms on his bosom and maintaining an attitude at once respectful and dignified, that so great a king as the Melesh Rick should thus speak of his servant. Open bracket. Richard was thus called by the Eastern nations. Close bracket. But now let me pray you again to compose yourself on your couch, for though I think there needs no further repetition of the divine draught, yet injury might ensue from any too early exertion, ere your strength be entirely restored. "'I must obey thee, Hakim,' said the king. "'Yet, believe me, my bosom feels so free from the wasting fire "'which, for so many days, hath scorched it, "'that I care not how soon I expose it to a brave man's lance. "'But hark! "'What mean these shouts and that distant music in the camp? "'Go, Tom's de Vaux, and make inquiry.' "'It is the Archduke Leopold,' said de Vaux, "'returning after a minute's absence, "'who makes, with his pot companions, some procession through the camp. "'The drunken fool!' exclaimed King Richard. "'Can he not keep his brutal inebriety within the veil of his pavilion, "'that he must needs show his shame to all Christendom? "'What say you, Sir Marquess?' "'He added, addressing himself to Conrad of Montserrat, "'who at that moment entered the tent. "'This much, honoured prince,' answered the Marquess, "'that I delight to see your majesty so well and so far recovered, "'and that is a long speech for any one to make "'who has partaken of the Duke of Austria's hospitality.' "'What?' 
"'You have been dining with the Teutonic wineskin?' said the monarch. "'And what frolic has he found out to cause all this disturbance? "'Truly, Sir Conrad, I have still held you so good a reveller "'that I wonder at your quitting the game.' "'Divorx, who had got a little behind the king, "'now exerted himself by look and sign "'to make the Marquess understand "'that he should say nothing to Richard of what was passing without. "'But Conrad understood not.' or heeded not the prohibition. "'What the Archduke does,' he said, "'is of little consequence to any one, least of all to himself, "'since he probably knows not what he is acting. "'Yet, to say truth, it is a gamble I should not like to share in, "'since he is pulling down the banner of England from St. George's Mount, "'in the centre of the camp yonder, and displaying his own in its steed.' "'What sayest thou?' "'exclaimed the king, in a tone which might have waked the dead. "'Nay,' said the Marquess, "'let it not chafe your highness that a fool should act according to his folly.' "'Speak not to me,' said Richard, springing from his couch, "'and casting on his clothes with a dispatch which seemed marvellous. "'Speak not to me, Lord Marquess. "'De Moulton, I command thee, speak not a word to me. "'He that breathes but a syllable is no friend to Richard Plantagenet. "'Hakim, be silent, I charge thee.' All this while the king was hastily clothing himself, and, with the last word, snatched his sword from the pillar of the tent, and without any other weapon, or calling any attendance, he rushed out of his pavilion. Conrad, holding up his hands as if in astonishment, seemed willing to enter into conversation with de Vaux. But Sir Thomas pushed rudely past him, and, calling to one of the royal equerries, said hastily, "'Fly to Lord Salisbury's quarters.' and let him get his men together, and follow me instantly to St. George's Mount. Tell him the king's fever has left his blood, and settled in his brain. Imperfectly heard, and still more imperfectly comprehended by the startled attendant whom de Vaux addressed us hastily, the equerry and his fellow-servants of the royal chamber rushed hastily into the tents of the neighbouring nobility, and quickly spread an alarm, as general as the cause seemed vague, through the whole British forces. The English soldiers, waked in alarm from that noonday rest which the heat of the climate had taught them to enjoy as a luxury, hastily asked each other the cause of the tumult, and, without waiting an answer, supplied by the force of their own fancy the want of information. Some said the Saracens were in the camp, some that the king's life was attempted, some that he had died of the fever the preceding night, many that he was assassinated by the Duke of Austria. The nobles and officers, at an equal loss with the common men to ascertain the real cause of the disorder, laboured only to get their followers under arms and under authority, lest their rashness should occasion some great misfortune to the crusading army. The English trumpet sounded loud, shrill, and continuously. The alarm cry of, Bows and bills, bows and bills, was heard from quarter to quarter, again and again shouted, and again and again answered by the presence of the ready warriors and their national invocation, St. George for Merry England. The alarm went through the nearest quarter of the camp, and men of all the various nations assembled, where perhaps every people in Christendom had their representatives, flew to arms and drew together under circumstances of general confusion, of which they knew neither the cause nor the object. It was, however, lucky, amid a scene so threatening, 
that the Earl of Salisbury, while he hurried after de Vaux's summons, with a few only of the readiest English men-at-arms, directed the rest of the English host to be drawn up and kept under arms, to advance to Richard's succour, if necessity should require, but in fit array and under due command, and not with the tumultuary haste which their own alarm and zeal for the king's safety might have dictated. In the meanwhile, without regarding for one instant the shouts, the cries, the tumult which began to thicken around him, Richard, with his dress in the last disorder, and his sheathed blade under his arm, pushed his way with the utmost speed, followed only by de Vaux, and one or two household servants, to St. George's Mount. He outsped even the alarm, which his impetuosity only had excited, and passed the quarter of his own gallant troops of Normandy, Poitio, Gascony, and Anjou, before the disturbance had reached them. Although the noise accompanying the German revel had induced many of the soldiery to get on foot to listen, the handful of Scots were also quartered in the vicinity, nor had they been disturbed by the uproar. But the king's person and his haste were most remarked by the knight of the leopard, who, aware that danger must be afoot, and hastening to share in it, snatched his shield and sword, and united himself to de Vaux, who, with some difficulty, kept pace with his impatient and fiery master. De Vaux answered a look of curiosity, which the Scottish knight directed towards him, with a shrug of his broad shoulders, and they continued, side by side, to pursue Richard's steps. The king was soon at the foot of St. George's Mount. The sides, as well as platforms of which, were now surrounded and crowded, partly by those belonging to the Duke of Austria's retinue, who were celebrating with shouts of jubilee the act which they considered as an assertion of national honour, partly by bystanders of different nations, whom, dislike to the English, or mere curiosity, had assembled together to witness the end of these extraordinary proceedings. Through this disorderly troop Richard burst his way, like a goodly ship under full sail, which cleaves her forcible passage through the rolling billows, and heeds not that they unite after her passage, and roar upon her stern. The summit of the eminence was a small level space, on which were pitched the rival banners, surrounded still by the archduke's friends and retinue. In the midst of the circle was Leopold himself, still contemplating with self-satisfaction the deed he had done, and still listening to the shouts of applause which his partisans bestowed with no sparing breath. While he was in this state of self-gratulation, Richard burst into the circle, intended indeed only by two men, but in his own headlong energies an irresistible host. "'Who is dead?' he said, laying his hands upon the Austrian standard, and speaking in a voice like the sound which precedes an earthquake. "'Who has dared to place this paltry rag beside the banner of England?' The Archduke wanted no personal courage, and it was impossible he could hear this question without reply. Yet so much was he troubled and surprised by the unexpected arrival of Richard, and affected by the general awe inspired by his ardent and unyielding character, that the demand was twice repeated, in a tone which seemed to challenge heaven and earth, ere the archduke replied, with such firmness as he could command. It was I, Leopold of Austria. Then shall Leopold of Austria, replied Richard, 
"'presently see the rate at which his banner and his pretensions are held by Richard of England.' "'So saying, he pulled up the standard spear, splintered it to pieces, "'threw the banner itself on the ground, and placed his foot upon it. "'Thus,' said he, "'I trample on the banner of Austria. "'Is there a knight among your Teutonic chivalry dare impeach my deed?' "'There was a momentary silence, "'but there are no braver men than the Germans.' I, and I, and I, was heard from several knights of the duke's followers, and he himself added his voice to those which accepted the king of England's defiance. "'Why do we dally thus?' said the Earl of Wallenrod, a gigantic warrior from the frontiers of Hungary. "'Brethren and noble gentlemen, this man's foot is on the honour of your country. Let us rescue it from violation, and down with the pride of England.' So saying, he drew his sword, and struck at the king a blow which might have proved fatal, had not the Scot intercepted and caught it upon his shield. "'I have sworn,' said King Richard, and his voice was heard above all the tumult, which now waxed wild and loud, "'never to strike one whose shoulders bear the cross. Therefore live while in road, but live to remember Richard of England.' As he spoke, he grasped the tall Hungarian round the waist, and, unmatched in wrestling, as in other military exercises, hurled him backwards with such violence that the mass flew as if discharged from a military engine, not only through the ring of spectators who witnessed this extraordinary scene, but over the edge of the mount itself, down the steep side of which one and road rolled headlong, until, pitching at length upon his shoulder, he dislocated the bone and lay like one dead. This almost supernatural display of strength did not encourage either the duke or any of his followers to renew a personal contest so inauspiciously commenced. Those who stood furthest back did indeed clash their swords and cry out, Cut the island mastiff to pieces! But those who were nearer veiled, perhaps their personal fears, under an affected regard for order, and cried for the most part, Peace, peace, the peace of the cross! THE PEACE OF HOLY CHURCH AND OUR FATHER THE POPE. These various cries of the assailants, contradicting each other, showed their irresolution, while Richard, his foot still on the archducal banner, glared round him with an eye that seemed to seek an enemy, and from which the angry noble shrunk appalled, as from the threatening grasp of a lion. Divorx and the Knight of the Leopard kept their places beside him, and though the swords which they held were still sheathed, it was plain that they were prompt to protect Richard's person to the very last, and their size and remarkable strength plainly showed the defence would be a desperate one. Salisbury and his attendants were also now drawing near, with bills and partisans brandished, and bows already bended. At this moment King Philip of France, attended by one or two of his nobles, came on the platform to inquire the cause of the disturbance and made gestures of surprise at finding the King of England raised from his sickbed, and confronting their common ally, the Duke of Austria, in such a menacing and insulting posture. Richard himself blushed at being discovered by Philip, whose sagacity he respected as much as he disliked his person, in an attitude neither becoming his character as a monarch, nor as a crusader. And it was observed that he withdrew his foot, as if accidentally, from the dishonoured banner, and exchanged his look of violent emotion 
for one of affected composure and indifference. Leopold also struggled to attain some degree of calmness, mortified as he was by having been seen by Philip in the act of passively submitting to the insults of the fiery king of England. Possessed of many of those royal qualities, for which he was termed by his subjects the August, Philip might be termed the Ulysses, as Richard was indisputably the Achilles of the Crusade. The king of France was sagacious, wise, deliberate in counsel, steady and calm in action, seeing clearly and steadily pursuing the measures most for the interest of his kingdom. Dignified and royal in his deportment, brave in person, but a politician rather than a warrior. The crusade would be no choice of his own, but the spirit was contagious, and the expedition was enforced upon him by the church, and by the unanimous wish of his nobility. In any other situation, or in a milder age, his character might have stood higher than that of the adventurous Cour de Leon. But in the crusade, itself an undertaking wholly irrational, sound reason was the quality of all others least esteemed, and the chivalric valour which both the age and the enterprise demanded was considered as debased if mingled with the least touch of discretion. So that the merit of Philip, compared with that of his haughty rival, showed like the clear but minute flame of a lamp placed near the glare of a huge blazing torch, which, not possessing half the utility, makes ten times more impression on the eye. Philip felt his inferiority in public opinion, with the pain natural to a high-spirited prince. And it cannot be wondered at, if he took such opportunities as offered for placing his own character in more advantageous contrast with that of his rival. The present seemed one of those occasions in which prudence and calmness might reasonably expect to triumph over obstinacy and impetuous violence. "'What means this unseemly broil betwixt the sworn brethren of the cross, "'the royal majesty of England and the princely duke of Leopold? "'How is it possible that those who are the chiefs and pillars of this holy expedition?' "'A truce with thy remonstrance, France,' said Richard, "'enraged inwardly at finding him placed on a sort of equality with Leopold, "'yet not knowing how to resent it. "'This duke, or prince, or pillar, if you will, hath been insolent.' "'and I have chastised him, that is all. "'Here is a coil, forsooth, because of a spurning hound.' "'Majesty of France,' said the Duke, "'I appeal to you and every sovereign prince "'against the foul indignity which I have sustained. "'The King of England hath pulled down my banner, "'torn and trampled on it. "'Because he had the audacity to plant it beside mine,' "'said Richard. "'My rank as thine equal entitled me.' "'replied the Duke, emboldened by the presence of Philip. "'Assert such a quality for thy person,' said King Richard, "'and by St. George I will treat thy person as I did thy broidered kerchief there, "'fit but for the meanest use to which kerchief may be put.' "'Nay, but patience, brother of England,' said Philip, "'and I will presently show Austria that he is wrong in this matter.' "'Do not think, noble Duke,' he continued, that, in permitting the standard of England to occupy the highest point in our camp, we, the independent sovereigns of the Crusade, acknowledge any inferiority to the royal Richard. It were inconsistent to think so, since even the Oriflamme itself, the great banner of France, to which the royal Richard himself, in respect of his French possessions, 
is but a vassal, holds for the present an inferior place to the lions of England. But as sworn brethren of the cross, military pilgrims, who, laying aside the pomp and pride of this world, are hewing with our swords the way to the holy sepulchre, I myself, and the other princes, have renounced to King Richard, from respect to his high renown and great feats of arms, that precedence which elsewhere, and upon other motives, would not have been yielded. I am satisfied that, when your royal grace of Austria shall have considered this, you will express sorrow for having placed your banner on this spot, and that the royal majesty of England will then give satisfaction for the insult he has offered. The Sprachsbrecher and the jester had both retired to a safe distance, when matters seemed to come to blows, but returned when words, their own commodity, seemed again about to become the order of the day. The man of Proverbs was so delighted with Philip's politic speech, that he clashed his baton at the conclusion, by way of emphasis, and forgot the presence in which he was in, so far as to say aloud that he himself had never said a wiser thing in his life. "'It may be so,' whispered Jonas Schwanker, "'but we shall be whipped if you speak so aloud.' The Duke answered sullenly that he would refer his quarrel to the General Council of the Crusade, a motion which Philip highly applauded, as qualified to take away a scandal most harmful to Christendom. Richard, retaining the same careless attitude, listened to Philip until his oratory seemed exhausted, and then said aloud, "'I am drowsy. This fever hangs about me still. Brother of France, thou art acquainted with my humour, and that I have at all times but few words to spare. Know therefore at once, I will submit a matter touching the honour of England, neither to prince, pope, nor council. Here stands my banner. Whatsoever pennon shall be reared within three butts length of it, I were it the oriflamme of which you were, I think, but now speaking, shall be treated as that dishonoured rag. Nor will I yield other satisfaction than that which these poor limbs can render in the list to any bold challenge. I were it against five champions instead of one. Now, said the jester, whispering his companion, that is as complete a piece of folly as I myself had said it. But yet I think there may be in this matter a greater fool than Richard yet. And who may that be? asked the man of wisdom. Philip, said the jester, or our own royal duke, should either accept the challenge. But, oh, most sage Sprachsbrecher, what excellent kings wouldst thou and I have made, since those on whose heads these crowds have fallen can play the proverb-monger and the fool as completely as ourselves? While these worthies plied their offices apart, Philip answered calmly to the almost injurious defiance of Richard. I came not hither to awaken fresh quarrels, contrary to the oath we have sworn, and the holy cause in which we have engaged. I part from my brother of England as brothers should part, and the only strife between the lions of England and the lilies of France shall be which shall be carried deepest into the ranks of the infidels. It is a bargain, my royal brother, said Richard, stretching out his hand with all the frankness which belonged to his rash but generous disposition. "'and soon may we have the opportunity "'to try this gallant and fraternal wager. "'Let this noble duke also partake "'in the friendship of this happy moment,' said Philip, "'and the duke approached half sullenly, half willingly, "'to enter into some accommodation. "'I think not of fools, nor of their folly,' "'said Richard carelessly. 
and the archduke, turning his back on him, withdrew from the ground. Richard looked after him as he retired. "'There is a sort of glow-worm courage,' he said, "'that shows only by night. "'I must not leave this banner unguarded in darkness. "'By daylight the look of the lions will alone defend it. "'Here, Thomas of Gilsland, I give thee the charge of the standard. "'Watch over the honour of England.' "'Her safety is yet more dear to me,' said de Vaux. "'And the life of Richard is the safety of England. "'I must have your highness back in your tent, "'and without further tarrants.' "'Thou art a rough and preemptory nurse, de Vaux, "'said the king, smiling, "'and then added, addressing Sir Kenneth, "'Valiant Scot, I owe thee a boon, "'and I will pay it richly. "'There stands the banner of England.' Watch it as novice does his armour on the night before he is dubbed. Stir not from it three spears' length, and defend it with thy body against injury or insult. Sound thy bugle if thou art assailed by more than three at once. Dost thou undertake the charge? Willingly, said Kenneth, and will discharge it upon penalty of my head. I will but arm me and return hither instantly. The kings of France and England then took formal leave of each other hiding, under an appearance of courtesy, the grounds of complaint which either had against the other. Richard against Philip, for what he deemed an officious interference betwixt him and Austria, and Philip against Cordelion, for the disrespectful manner in which his mediation had been received. Those whom this disturbance had assembled now drew off in different directions, leaving the contested mount in the same solitude which had subsisted till interrupted by the Austrian bravado. Men judged of the events of the day according to their partialities, and while the English charged the Austrian with having afforded the first ground of quarrel, those of other nations concurred in casting the greater blame upon the insular haughtiness and assuming character of Richard. "'Thou seest,' said the Marquess of Montserrat to the Grand Master of the Templars, that subtler courses are more effective than violence. I have unloosed the bonds which held together this branch of sceptres and lances. Thou wilt see them shortly fall asunder. I would have called thy plan a good one, said the Templar, had there been but one man of courage among yonder cold-blooded Austrians to sever the bonds of which you speak with his sword. A knot that is unloosed may again be fastened, but not so the cord which has been cut to pieces. End of chapter 11, part 2